0: Welcome to this special presentation from the Revelation Promises Hope Bible Prophecy Seminar. It is our hope that you are led closer to Jesus Christ by listening to this message. We encourage you to listen to the presentations of this seminar in their order, for at times foundational material from previous messages will be necessary to understand the present topic. God bless you now as you listen to this presentation. Father in heaven, Lord, what a privilege it is again for us to come together in this place to study the Bible tonight. As we look at your solution to the universe's greatest problem, we're asking that you would open our minds and give us understanding and teach us by your Holy Spirit. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we want to begin with an illustration that the Bible gives to us in the book of Acts, the New Testament. Book of Acts, if you find your New Testament, the latter half of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. We're going to chapter 16, and we're going to begin uh, toward the middle of that passage, the the latter middle of that passage. In this passage, Paul and Silas, two of God's missionaries, two of God's preachers of righteousness, have been sharing the gospel. And as they have shared, of course, it's rubbed some people the wrong way because they were not wanting to hear this message. The message of Christ was something new. The message of a Messiah present in their time was something uh, different for them. And so we come to the place in verse 20 where they're coming now before the leaders of the city and they're being chastised, we might say, for their faith, for their teaching. And as things come along, in verse 23 of Acts chapter 16, you find that they had been whipped. Many stripes, whipping stripes, have been laid on them. And then it says, they were cast into prison. The jailer was going to keep them uh, safely inside the inner prison. And then we come down through, in verse 26, you find that in the middle of the night, there's an earthquake that shakes the entire prison. It actually follows what was said in verse 25, where in the midst of their pain... In the midst of their uh, discomfort in that dark, dingy prison, Paul and Silas sang praises to God. And the, uh, the prisoners were hearing them. And then the earthquake strikes and we find at the end of that passage, we come to verse 29, the jail guard who has just been spared from committing suicide for fear that everybody had left during the earthquake, When Paul calls out, he says, Do yourself no harm, for we're all here. The jailer comes in, and he falls down before Paul and Silas there. And he asks a question. A question that I believe is one of the questions that each of us, at some point in our life, are going to deal with if we haven't already. He asks the question as it's found there in verse 30, What must I do to be saved? Truly a heart question coming from this man who up to this point was what we might call a pagan or a heathen. He was not a Jew. He was not a Christian believer. But he comes to these great missionaries, these great teachers of God, and asks the question of them, What must I do to be saved? I believe that this question is something that God has placed within our hearts. To find an answer to this question is something God is asking us to seek. Something God wants us to look into. And as we ask that question, as we consider that question tonight, I invite you to look into your own heart and say, is this my question? Have I found the answer truly to this question? What must I do to be saved? The Bible gives us an answer. It's the great answer. This is probably one of the greatest questions the Bible actually gives to us. But the answer comes as we go into Paul's writings in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The Bible has said that we are saved by what? By grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith, and contrary to what many of the religions of the world, many of the great world religions, of the Eastern world, they have this tendency to find salvation or to find uh, freedom from their pain, freedom from their distress, from doing something. But the Bible presents it very clearly to us that we are saved by grace. Now whose grace would you suppose that would be? God's grace. We are saved by God's grace through our faith. An illustration I like to use is to consider your hand as faith, or to consider faith like a hand. When God offers the grace and He shows us the grace, we're going to discuss more about that as we come tonight and in future night, but our hand is necessary to reach out and grasp the gift, as the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that God's grace is a gift to us. Now many talk in our world We hear over and over again throughout our community about being saved. The passage has just told us that we are saved by grace. What does it mean to be saved? Or better yet, what are we being saved from? The kingdom of darkness, Satan. But yet one thing we might narrow it right down to is we are being saved from sin. We're being saved from sin. Notice what the Bible tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 3, and verse 23. For how many? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, how many are included in that word all? Everyone. And that includes you as well as me. Each one of us is brought into view when the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of. Of the glory of God. Now, if we are all, have all sinned, that makes us all a sinner. Now, that's not something that we like to recognize. It's not something that goes well with the human nature to acknowledge the fact that I'm a sinner. I'll acknowledge the fact that I have done something wrong. I don't know anyone who likes to acknowledge their errors or to acknowledge their wrong. I know it doesn't go well with migraine. It's against the grain to acknowledge that I've done something backward or something wrong. And yet the Bible tells us that we need salvation. We need to be saved from the sin that has corrupted each and every one of us. As we studied last, the last time we met, we looked at how sin began in our world and how the floodgates were opened by our first parents' choice. And the sin just came in and knocked all of us over. And now we're drowning out here in this sea of sin. But the Bible says that we can be saved. We can be saved by the grace of God through our faith. It presents to us that sin is like a disease that comes in and corrupts and takes over our entire being. A spiritual disease, not like cancer or heart disease or diabetes, but rather a disease that taints us at the very core. A disease that changes us, makes us something that was never intended for us to be. And God wants to free us from this disease. He wants to heal us from the disease of sin. But what is a result? Now, I want to clarify the difference between result and consequence. And we're going to see that from the Bible. But what is a result of our sin? The Bible opens to us that in the book of Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2. He says, but your iniquities, and that's the same as sins, have separated you from your God. And so we think back in the time of Adam and Eve when they were there in the Garden of Eden and they ate from that tree, something resulted. They had to be removed from their garden home. No longer could they have this day-by-day interaction with the God who created them. They were now separated. A gulf, we might say, had come between. Something was needing to bridge the gap. But still the separation was there. God said, sin separates you from your God. And how many of us have been corrupted by sin? Each and every one of us. And therefore, each and every one of us have experienced or are in this state of separation from our God. And now, because God cannot exist in the same place as sin, He had to remove us from Himself. Because He loves us so much, He doesn't want to see us destroyed. He doesn't want to see us lost. But rather, what He wants to see is us saved and redeemed and restored to the same relationship that He had with Adam and Eve at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. But, The Bible tells us that this separation came as a result, and of course we know death came as a result. We know pain and sickness came as a result. But there's a consequence to sin. We might look at our children and say, they disobeyed and did something that we told them not to, and they fell down and scraped their knee. That was a result. But the disobedience has to have a consequence. They have to learn through a punishment of some sort that what they have done is wrong. And so the Bible speaks to us very plainly that there's a consequence to our sin. And it's not a pleasant consequence. But notice what the Bible says in Romans 3 and 23. For the wages, that is the payment or the penalty, is of sin, is what? Death. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. Death, the consequence, the ultimate penalty at the end of the game, the Bible tells us, is death. Each and every one of us, therefore, have been condemned to death. We are under a death penalty. But that's not how God intended it at the beginning. That's not what God wanted for us at the very beginning. He did not want us to fall under this death penalty. But it came as a consequence to our choice. We have been separated from God. Every one of us are. Everyone out these windows, outside these walls, separated from God because of sin. But God had a plan. God had a way that He wanted to institute to bring us back, to restore us to the original, holy, high plan that God had. Now this presents a problem to us. The fact that you and I are sinners, the fact that we are separated from God, and the fact that we have a death penalty hanging over our head is a very serious problem. And there's something about this problem that God wanted to deal with. Because that which God loved the most was now completely tainted and completely entangled by that which God hated the most. And what was He going to do? How could God deal with that which He loved the most, being you, you're His child, being completely entangled with that which He hates the most, which is sin? And just looking at you and I, it seems that the two are virtually inseparable. Because we are completely tied up in this nastiness called sin. Back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve made their choice, And God had to come for the final time and talk to them and explain what was going to take place. He made the decision not to kick them to the curb, as you might hear in slang vernacular. He didn't throw them away. He didn't look at this world and say, okay, sin came here, I'm going to push that one to the side and I'm going to start fresh. No, He didn't. God made a choice that He was going to do something. He was going to take the problem upon Himself and deal with it Himself. How many of you are parents here tonight? Probably every hand almost can go up. Almost. You have a child. Think back to the days, if, if they're gone by, or if you're there presently, you might be experiencing this type of thing, when your child was probably, let's say, five years old, learning to catch a ball, learning to throw a ball out in, the, out in your yard. Well, let's just say now on one day your child is out there. Let's say it's your son. Your son is out there on the, on the road and he's playing with his ball and the friend is there as well and they're tossing the ball back and forth to each other and one something happens in that the ball gets thrown a little too hard and that ball from your son's hand goes sailing on through your neighbor's window. Now, that's a problem. Your neighbor probably is not going to be very happy about the problem. But let me ask you the question, Is your five-year-old son able to deal with that problem? Hardly. He can't do it. He doesn't have money enough to pay for a window. He probably is not able to really go over there and clean up the mess himself. Whose problem does it become? It becomes your problem because it's your child. When God looked down on Adam and Eve, our first parents, from whom we've all come, and He saw that these children of His had a problem, made a big mess, and everything was now going to be different. Everything was destroyed from the original plan that God wanted. He said, they can't fix it. It would be impossible for them to fix this problem. And so God stepped back and said, I am going to take care of this problem myself. I am going to be the one who's going to deal with the effects, who's going to take the pain, who's going to be cut and bruised by cleaning up this mess. God was waiting to pronounce this, and He did. We found that last time we met. When God in Genesis 3.15 came and said, I'm going to put a hatred, there's going to be a conflict between my people and between the devil. From the woman's seed, from the line of humanity, there's going to come one who will give a crushing blow to the devil. And the New Testament pointed out to us that that was a ministry that Jesus Himself was going to take. God had a plan. It was a plan B, because plan A was so high and so glorious, but it didn't come to pass because of Adam and Eve's choice. And we might say because of our choice. Because each one of us has made the choice to pursue their path. But God had a plan B. It was a glorious plan B. The second best thing that could take place was that He was going to restore us to the place He wanted us to be. And so God said, I have a way. Okay, God, what is your way? How do we see your way? How back then did they know what was going to take place? Well, God made a statement in the book of Psalms. Psalm 77, verse 13, where David speaks of God's glorious plan, he says, your way, O God, is in the what? Is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? David says, your way, God, is in the sanctuary. What is the sanctuary? It's not something that we hear much about these days. It's not something that we talk about unless we're talking about the room in which we have church service, the worship service at various churches, that's sometimes called a sanctuary. But when God says sanctuary in the Bible, He's not talking about our church inner inner building where we hold our worship service. Rather, He's talking about something that He instituted Himself way back in the times of the Old Testament, services that were taking place after the results of sin began to be seen. We find the sanctuary being mentioned first way back in the book of Exodus, the second book of our Bibles. In chapter 25, verse 8 and 9, God said this, Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Now notice, this is God speaking. God, because of sin, had been separated from His people. We sometimes think that the bad end of the, of the deal was given to us because we were separated from God. But notice God's longing here. Notice how God, as a loving and patient Father, is looking down and saying, I want to be reunited with my people. And He says, build a sanctuary, Moses. Make the people, make me a sanctuary, that I may come and dwell among you again. I want to be close. I want to be near. He says, make the sanctuary. According to all that I show you, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so... Shall you make it? God requested the sanctuary. It was something that He asked the Israelites to do. When they were wandering in the desert, they had come out from Egyptian bondage. And now they're in the desert there, and God says, make this. Make this sanctuary structure, the tabernacle. And so they did. They did. Moses instructed the people. They came together, and God had given Moses the blueprint, and Moses instructed the people to build it, and they, and they did. Right there in the desert... As time was passing by and they were getting close to God again, they began to build this structure. A structure in which there was an area of land separated from the rest of the camp. A courtyard was set up. A fence was put around. Linen hangings were there. And we find that God had them put several pieces of furniture in that courtyard. And then there was an inner tabernacle which was divided into two rooms. Let's take a look at some of these things in the courtyard. First, there was an altar, an altar of burnt offering. It is on this altar that the sacrifices were placed. It is on this altar that the fire was burning continually as it was lighted by God. The next piece of furniture in the courtyard of the sanctuary was a laver. It was actually a basin filled with water, representing the purification from sin, the cleansing that would come as God's people partook of His cleansing grace. And then you come inside of the tabernacle, the actual tent structure that was in the sanctuary, and you find two rooms divided by a curtain. And inside, these, inside this first room, which was called the holy place, was a table, a table called the table of showbread, on which there were six, two stacks of six unleavened bread cakes that were there all the time. Of course, they were changed, representing Jesus, the bread of life. As it came across the inner holy place, you come to the seven-branch candlestick, which gave light to the inside of the tabernacle, which was the only source of light inside the tabernacle. Jesus was the one who said, I am the light of the world. And then you come to the near the veil, near the curtain, separating the holy place from the most holy place and you find another altar. But animals were not sacrificed on this altar. No uh, animal parts were here. The fire was not the same as the fire on the outside altar. But this was called the altar of incense, in which there was constantly an aroma, constantly a smoke rising from this altar. The book of Revelation tells us that incense represents the prayers of God's people, constantly ascending before God. And this was the holy place. And just beyond the veil, just beyond that curtain separating those two rooms, was the most holy place. And inside the most holy place was one glorious piece of what we'll call furniture. It was a large box made of wood overlaid with gold. On the top of which there were two golden angels. What was the name of this furniture? Does anyone know? It was the Ark of the Covenant. Now there was something special about the Ark of the Covenant. As you can see in this picture, there's a glowing light right there between the two golden angels. This was where the visible presence of God would dwell. Remember in Exodus 25 verse 8, God said, Build a sanctuary because I want to dwell with the people. Now God could not come in a bodily shape and walk amongst the tents and walk amongst the the congregation. Because the congregation was sinful and God is holy. They cannot be in the same place at the same time. So God came as close as He could. Inside the tabernacle in the most holy place, He came in a visible light, a glow. It's referred to by most as the Shekinah glory. There in the most holy place. But there was something else that was special about the Ark of the Covenant. It was a large box and it contained something very holy. Very special. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments of God. As that cover was opened, which was called the Mercy Seat, and and it was underneath where you find the two tables of stone. Now the Ten Commandments were holy because they were written with the very finger of God. Many things that we read in the Bible were penned by men or women. But we find in the Old Testament the Ten Commandments were actually written with God's finger something holy, something inscribed, you might say, with the signature of God. And they were taken, this was the government, the law of God, placed right in the Ark of the Covenant underneath the presence of God. And this was the tabernacle, the holy place, the most holy place, and the outer courtyard in which the sacrifices took place. But now God didn't just give them the sanctuary for the purpose of having something nice to look at. It wasn't just because of the gold, it wasn't because of the bronze or the brass, it wasn't because of the smoke and the nice smell of the incense. There was a purpose behind all of this. Each and every article in the sanctuary, each and every service of the sanctuary was a prophecy. Each and everything looked forward to something that would come. We're gathering in this seminar because we're looking at how prophecy gives us messages of hope. We're looking at how the book of Revelation and how the books of Daniel and the prophecies of the Bible bring us messages of hope. And if anything of the Old Testament gives a message of hope, it's the prophecies that were acted out in the services of the sanctuary. Now this may be something new and so I'm inviting you to consider what was taking place here. There were services that took place on a daily basis. Something that would happen every single day one offering that took place in the sanctuary, which we'll focus on tonight, was called the sin offering. Let's just say you, as an individual, had, made some, had done some sin. It needed to be reconciled. You had, because of that sin, separated yourself from your Heavenly Father. And reconciliation needed to be made. Atonement needed to be made. Atonement is spelled A T, O N E. M-E-N-T. God wanted to be again at one with His people. And so He gave the services of the sanctuary. And this is what was taking place. You as a sinner had come. Now you had committed some sort of sin that needed to be reconciled. And you came into the sanctuary bringing with you a little lamb. You had sinned. The law says that sin requires the payment of what? Death. But God doesn't want to destroy you. He doesn't want you to die because you are the sinner that He is longing and trying to save. But what happens in the sanctuary is that God has instituted a plan in which you can come, but you bring a lamb. It had to be a perfect lamb. It had to be spotless. There couldn't be a blemish in this lamb. No disease, no sickness, no broken bones, no blemishes. Perfect and spotless. You came. You came to the sanctuary, and there you were met by a priest. As you came into the sanctuary inside the courtyard now, right before the tabernacle tent structure, you came near the priest, and you would lay your hands on the head of that lamb. And as you applied pressure, as your hands were there, you confessed your sin in prayer to God. And it was a symbolic transfer of your sin, which requires death, to... The little lamb. And now the lamb carries the sin. And the law still requires the death of the sinner. And so the lamb must die. And with your own hand, you would take the knife and slay the lamb. Because it was your sin that required death. Your actions that required death. And so the lamb was slain by your own hand. The blood was collected by the priest in a little bowl. And then parts of the lamb were burned on the altar because sin needs to be destroyed. God has been giving a picture here of how sin is removed from the person he's trying to save. Sin has been separated. The lamb has now taken the sin. It needs to be annihilated, it needs to be destroyed. And so on the altar it is. But the blood represents the payment. And so the payment must come before God. And so the priest would take that blood and he would come inside the sanctuary. He would come inside the holy place and he would dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it before the veil near the altar of incense. See the symbolism here. The altar of incense again, the incense rising represents the prayers of confession of God's people. So as the prayers rise, they're mingled with the blood of the sacrifice. An atonement is being made. The sins now are being transferred inside the sanctuary. Taken away from view. So you can go back out amongst the people. The sin separated from you. Now the sanctuary holds it. The symbolism was deep. The services were very impactful. The sin being separated from you. God taking it away and bringing it and holding it within the sanctuary out of sight from all people. The Bible tells us that the priest did a mediation, did an intercession for us, for us as sinners. The sinner that would come, the sacrifice was paid, but he still needed a representative to bring him to God. And so that was done in the ministry of the priest, as he interceded in the holy place with the blood of the the sacrifice. Now this sanctuary service teaches us something. It teaches us something more than just the fact that animals had to die. Because God didn't intend for it to be just that, a meaningless service, but it had something deeper. It had something clear that God wanted to bring across to us. What does the sanctuary service teach us? And by the way, we've just scratched the surface tonight. Just scratched the surface on what the meaning of these services were. What each article of furniture, what it represented, just scratched the surface. But what does the sanctuary service actually teach us? Well, I believe it teaches us many things. But two points I want to focus on tonight. And that is, number one, the offensiveness of sin. Sin is offensive. How would you feel of having to take your prized lamb, the very best one? Because remember, it had to be the best one. How would you feel having to come and take its life yourself after raising it up from from infanthood? Lamb infanthood, and kill it yourself because of your sin. Sin is offensive. God wants us to know that He hates sin, and He wants us to hate it too. Because it's sin that has separated us from our God. It is sin that has pulled the children away from a father. And it's sin that God wants to remove from our lives so that we can experience the true healing, the true restoration that He has planned. But the sanctuary services teach us, while it does teach us that sin is offensive, it teaches us something else, something even greater than that. It teaches us that God had a plan for dealing with the sin problem. And He was showing us in this symbol, in the symbol of the sanctuary, that there was a plan in place. It was a plan of substitution, where you would receive a substitute who would take your place. Someone to take the penalty for you so that you don't have to. In the services of the sanctuary, this was clearly seen in the, in the Lamb. As you had the sin, but you didn't die. Rather, the Lamb took your place. The substitution that God wanted us to understand. And remember, the Old Testament sanctuary services were a prophecy. They were a foreshadow of something greater, something more glorious that was going to come down the line in the future. God's glorious plan of redemption, His plan of salvation, of restoration, could not be accomplished by just a lamb. It could not be accomplished by just a human priest. It could not be accomplished by gold and by silver and tables and altars. But it needed something more that the sanctuary was pointing forward to, The sanctuary was a real place. It was a real place that that had services, real services, that were involving real people. But it pointed forward to something even greater. God had a substitute that would take your place. God had had an answer for the sin problem. And He makes the statement, as we consider who would be the Lamb, Who would be the one that would take our place but couldn't be just a regular animal lamb? The book of Job in chapter 33 verse 24 made this statement. I believe referencing back to the time of sin when sin entered our world. God said, it says, He, God, is gracious unto him, man, and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. What is A ransom. A ransom is a, is, a, is a cost. It's money, usually, that is paid to buy something back. We find in, in sometimes you see in, in old movies, someone has come into town and they've grabbed a hostage and now they send out a note. And they're all covered with their bandana around their face so nobody can see them. And they're saying, this much money for the release of the hostage or else. Well, when sin took us hostage... When people were taken hostage by, the, by Satan and sin, and a ransom was demanded by the law of God because of sin, God said, I have the ransom. A ransom would be paid. And it was not going to be a thousand dollars. It was not going to be a million dollars. It was going to be the maximum amount. It was going to be the absolute best that heaven could offer to rescue us back from sin and to take us back from the captivity that Satan had held us in. And the Bible in the book of Isaiah chapter 53 gave a prophecy, a foreshadow of exactly who this lamb would be. Notice the words that Isaiah speaks. In prophecy, not knowing a specific name, but looking forward in time, seeing an answer to the sin problem. Isaiah 53 verse 3 and onward, it says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace Was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And he shall see the travail of his soul. And shall be satisfied. The prophet Isaiah looked forward in time, and God had given him the picture. The sanctuary service that you had seen, Isaiah, the representative of a Messiah to come, the representative of a true Lamb who would come to bear the sin and to pay the penalty for the sin of the whole human race. And you can see the language that Isaiah uses. Language of the sanctuary, how there would be a burden, how there would be sin, how there would be grief laid on someone else so that we might receive the relief and the atonement. And Isaiah brings it out very clearly as he looked forward. I believe he saw the lamb. I believe he saw a lamb slain. I believe, as Revelation says, he saw the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19 tell us, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, that means things that can perish, things that can die away and pass away, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, notice the language now, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. We find in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter brings us back in our minds, right back to the sanctuary service, showing us that it was more than just spilling of blood. It was more than just animals and sacrifices and gold altars and brazen altars. But it had something to do with our salvation. It had something to do with lifting us up from the pit of sin because God was the one who had said, I have found a ransom. And there Jesus comes, almost 2,000 years ago, coming voluntarily Coming not forced into our world as a human being. Suffered during his life like none other have suffered. And then finally at the end of his 33 years. Stretched out his arms on a cross. And took the penalty that you and I should have taken. It was our sins that required the death of an innocent victim. It was our sins that required God to do something because we were unable to do it. And then from heaven, from heaven to earth, came the spotless Lamb, Jesus Christ. We see the innocent taking the penalty of the guilty. We see the righteous giving life to the unrighteous. We see the God who had life giving those of us who were dead life eternal. Making it possible, bringing it clearly across in the picture and the image of the sanctuary. Showing us that God was going to do something else. And it's, my my friends, by the merits, the goodness of Jesus, not not me, not you, But it's the goodness and the merits of Jesus that can be credited now to your account and to my account so that the sins can be removed just like they were in the sanctuary and how we can experience newness of life and restoration. God has said to us in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, and all of us were under that penalty. But notice the second half of the verse, the message of hope that comes through. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to back up one second. It says the wages. That means the payment, the, pe- uh, the, the salary, right? That's, that's a term from the workforce. When you work your two weeks, you get your wage, You have an hourly wage or a monthly wage. It's your salary, what you're paid. Which indicates to us that sin or the penalty of death, the wage of sin, comes because we have earned it. We've done something to deserve death and all we have. We've we've sinned. But then when it comes and gives us the message of hope, it doesn't say, but the wage of God or the salary of God to you is eternal life. What does it say? The gift of God is eternal life. Can you earn a gift? You cannot earn a gift. Just like we started with the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, it said, For you are saved by grace. That's God's grace. Through faith. The Bible says faith comes from God. And it says not of yourselves. Nothing that you or I have done, will do, can do, can bring us back into favor with God. Only the death of Jesus can bring us back into favor with God, can restore the relationship. Remember we had said that because of sin, we were separated, a great gulf between us and our Heavenly Father. Well, Jesus comes and He spreads out His arms on the cross, He grabs heaven and He grabs earth and bridges the gap again, brings us back together. And the Bible says that that gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Salvation Is offered as a gift, nothing that we can own, nothing that we can earn, excuse me. Jesus the Lamb, just like the Lamb of the sanctuary, was now coming as a substitute for you. It's interesting when Jesus began his ministry. And it began his ministry at his baptism. We find that in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist, who was the one doing the baptizing in that time in the Jordan River, he looked and saw someone coming down the riverbank. And he said in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of who? The Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Now to you and I, my friends, that may not make such a connection when we read it the first time. But remember that John is there, and he's surrounded by a Jewish audience who were very acquainted with the sanctuary service. They were acquainted with the sacrifice of lambs. They were acquainted with the promise of a coming Messiah. And here in, the, in John 129, as he looks up, I can imagine all the heads turn and look. But there's no lamb. There's no goats. There's no sheep anywhere. And then as the individual named Jesus Christ steps forward into the water, John says, this is the Lamb. This is the Lamb of God who is coming to take away the sin of the world. Not like one lamb was shed, his blood was shed in the Old Testament sanctuary that would take away the sin of one person. But this is a lamb that would come, that would take away the sin of the world, remove the reproach, bridge the gap, connect us again with our Heavenly Father, bring us back into union with Him again. And as John pointed to the people, and he said, Behold, it meant look. Not just take a quick glance and turn away, take a good, long, steady look. That's what behold means. Take it in. God calls us to do the same. He calls us to take a good, long, steady look at the person of Jesus Christ. To realize that Jesus is the one that can not only take away the sin of the world, but that the sin of the world includes mine and He can take away my sin. He can restore me, yes me, regardless of whatever I have done. To fellowship with God again, restore the relationship that my sin had broken. God says it's possible. It's a message of grace. And Christ has come and asks us, John asks us to behold Him. But we need to do more than behold Him. I would venture to say, as He gives us in His Word, the Bible, we need to believe Him, that His message is true, that His message of hope is for me. You know, one of the greatest things that is difficult for people in this world to grasp is how someone could love them enough to die for them. And you might look at your past. I don't know what's in your past. All I know is what's in my past. And we might look and say, my record is pretty messy, and I don't want anybody to see that. Well, God has already seen it. And God has accepted you with that record. And He says, if you will believe Me... And behold me, I will give you life eternal. I will give you the restoration that I wanted you to have from the very beginning. God wants us to experience that restoration. And He gives us a promise of peace. He gives us a promise of hope. And a promise that we can have confidence in coming before our Heavenly Father. Confidence like they had to have in the sanctuary service when they were coming into the temple, into the sanctuary, they had to believe that their prayer would be heard because of the ministry of the priest. The Bible says to us that we have a high priest. His name is Jesus. He is the sacrifice who shed His blood for us, and He's also the priest that intercedes for us. We're going to talk about that more this weekend as we continue. But God wants us to know and understand that we can come. The Bible in 1 John chapter 1, and verse 9 tells us if we confess our sins, not anyone else's, this is a personal matter. This is something between God and me alone. And it says if we confess our sins, He, that's God, is faithful and just, that means fair, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness is something that covers the past. When I come to Jesus and I say, Lord, I realize that my past is rotten. And you might say the same thing about your past God, I don't want anybody to see this. I want this to be removed, covered up. Jesus says, My blood covers that. Doesn't matter what you've done, my blood covers that. If you'll confess it and give it to me, it can be forgiven. That's the past. But this verse contains a message of hope for today, for the present. We might say, I never have right thoughts. I can't think the right things. I can't go down the right path. I have struggles now doing the right thing. Well, God says that He is willing to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's present tense. That heart that you have inside, like mine, that doesn't think the right way, doesn't feel the right way, doesn't want to do the right thing, God says, I can cleanse it. In fact, he says in the book of Ezekiel, if you'll give me that one, he says, I'll give you a new heart. One that wants to do the right thing. God doesn't play around when he says, I can restore you. I can redeem you. I can buy you back by my own blood and bring us into fellowship again. Bring us into harmony with one another again. If we turn to God, if we accept the message that Christ bears to us, the message that the sanctuary, the prophecy of the sanctuary brings to us, we will see that we can come in humbleness and with contrite heart, that we can come with whatever stain we have on the record, and Jesus receives us with loving arms because His blood has the power. His grace has the power to change our past, to wipe it away, And to change our road for the future. God has the ability to do that for you. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1. Where the announcement was being made to Mary and Joseph. That they were going to have a baby. That Mary was going to have a baby rather. Joseph to be the stepfather to that baby. He says the angel was saying. God was speaking through the angel. She shall bring forth a son. And you will call his name Jesus, for the reason that He will save His people from their sins. God made the announcement and said, this little baby, this little baby is the one that's going to make the difference for eternity for anyone who believe." It might have been hard in the Old Testament in the sanctuary bringing that lamb on his little leash to the sanctuary and say, how can it be possible that this lamb is going to make a difference? probably Mary and Joseph wondered the same thing. Probably they looked at a little baby and said, how could it be that this little baby will save the world? But when we understand who the baby is, when we understand truly who the baby is, that this baby was Jesus and His identity is brought out in the Bible, then we can see, then we can understand that God had a plan that involved us being separated from our sins and Jesus taking them. Jesus offers us righteousness in place of our dirty robes. He offers us forgiveness in place of our sin. He offers us life in place of our death. And He's paid it. 2,000 years ago, He paid it. He did it. And today, the invitation is still given. The invitation is there for you and I to accept That gift. And Jesus offers to be our sin bearer if we will accept Him. He offers to be the one that can voluntarily take the sin out of your life, off of your shoulders, so that you don't have to pay the penalty. And He says, I'll take it because I've already paid for it with my own blood. Why would we wish to pay for it ourselves with our own life? probably one of the most famous texts of the Bible, we mentioned this the other night, is John chapter 3 and verse 16. The message is so clear. The message is so real. God wants us to understand it. Would you read this one out loud with me on the screen here? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That whosoever, that can include you. That whosoever means whoever, anybody. It's open, a blank check, free for all. Anybody can accept this. You don't have to have a certain color skin. You don't have to speak a certain language. You don't have to be born in one part of the world or another or make any special trips to any holy cities. God simply says, if you believe In Him, this life is yours. God offers the life in exchange for the sin. He offers the forgiveness in exchange for the mess that we've made. And I don't know of a better deal anywhere in the universe than what God is offering us today. There was a teacher. A teacher in a one-room schoolhouse of years ago. And this teacher was new to town, experienced in teaching, and so he understood a few things. And so he asked his students, which was a, it was a multi-grade classroom, one-room schoolhouse, and he said, you know, we probably would like to have some rules in our classroom. What do the students think about it? Everybody thought there needed to be some rules in the classroom. Okay, he said, well, let's, let's consider. What do you think should be some of the rules? Well, the students started to answer back and they said, you know, probably no chewing gum. The last teacher had that one. We don't want any gum chewed in our classroom. Okay? They marked it on the, on the chalkboard. No chewing gum. Another student put up a hand and he said, you know, no fighting. Some of the boys are bigger. We don't want any fighting in our, in our school. Good rule, the teacher said, and up on the, up on the chalkboard. So that rule went. Another stu- student put up, he says, I'm a Christian. I don't like foul language. Okay, no swearing. Everybody is in agreement. Yet no swearing. So no swearing went up on the on the bullet, on the chalkboard. And so the various rules were placed and the the schoolhouse was continuing for a number of days and weeks and everybody was abiding by the rules. Nice little unified schoolhouse. And then one day one of the big boys went at lunchtime to his where his to his coat rack to grab his lunch to eat. And he opened up his box or his bag and he found half the lunch gone course that came to the teacher 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 my lunch is gone somebody stole my lunch and the teacher said we don't have a rule about stealing no punishment can be given because it wasn't a rule well everybody agreed we need to have the rule no stealing in our in our one room schoolhouse so up the teacher put it up on the board no stealing he added it to the list that they had developed and he said, we need a punishment, teacher. Something needs to be done if people do this type of thing again in our schoolhouse. What should it be? Ten lashes. Ten lashes from the teacher. If they chew the gum or if they fight or if they use bad language or if they steal, teacher, we need ten lashes. Another one said, with no coat. No coat on to take the lashes. Everybody's in agreement? Everybody was in agreement. The schoolhouse continued, life in the schoolhouse, education continued. Things went on a number of weeks further, and things were were good until someone else's lunch went missing. Another big boy in the back of the schoolhouse who sat in the last row, his lunch was gone. The entire lunch. And so the teacher stopped the classes that day and they had to find out who was the one because there were rules in this, in this schoolhouse and the rules had to be kept and the punishment had to be given. That were the rules. Everybody was in agreement. Who was it? Was it you, Jimmy? No. Billy, was it you? No. Mary? No. Finally, it came down to one of the smallest boys in the schoolhouse, Tommy. Little Tommy, they knew he came from a poor family. They knew his home life wasn't so good. Tommy, was it you? Tommy began to cry. Yes, teacher, it was me. I was the one who took the lunch. Teacher, we haven't had food in our house for four days. My father had a job and and he he was let go from his job. Things are not well in our family. Mother doesn't work. We have a large family. There's no food at home. Well, Tommy, you knew the rules. No stealing. The punishment must be given. Tommy come to the front. Tommy came up, stood by the teacher's desk, still had his coat on. One of the boys in the back of the classroom said, Teacher, his coat needs to come off. The rule says lashes with no coat. Tommy, take your coat off. Oh, teacher, please don't make me take my coat off. Tommy, your coat needs to come off. Tommy unzipped his coat. It was a cold winter day. And underneath that coat was no shirt. Bare skin. And Tommy leaned over the desk, crying his heart out. And the teacher came up with, with the lash, with the, the thing to give the lashes and just as the, 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 the instrument came up, wait, teacher, came from the back of the classroom. And here was the boy whose lunch had been stolen. And he said, teacher, don't give him the lashes. But the rule said ten lashes with no coat. We've all agreed that it must take place. Teacher, don't give him the lashes. Give them to me. He came up. He was a big boy. Had a shirt. And what he did is he left, he leaned over Tommy on the teacher's desk and said, Okay, teacher, give the lashes. That boy who had his lunch stolen was willing to take the lashes for the one who could never have borne them, the one who would not be able to handle the punishment. That boy took those ten lashes that day. And you know, the Bible tells us that Jesus has done the very same thing. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God commendeth. That means to demonstrate. He's demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were going to be the small scrawny boy with no coat and no shirt. But Jesus said deliver him from going down to the pit because I am the ransom. And Jesus came down and leaned over us and took the stripes. He took the lashes. He took what should have been ours to give us what was rightfully His. I want to share with you The words to a song. The song reads like this. Thorns on his head, spear in his side. Yet it was a heartache that made him cry. He gave his life so you would understand. Is there any way you could say no to this man? If Christ Himself were standing here, face full of glory and eyes full of tears, and He held out His arms and His nail printed hands, is there any way you could say no to this man? How could you look in His tear stained eyes knowing it's you He's thinking of? Could you tell Him you're not ready? to give Him your life? Could you say you don't think you need His love? Jesus is here with His arms open wide. You can see Him with your heart if you'll stop looking with your eyes. He's left it up to you. He's done all that He can. Is there any way you could say no to this man? Thorns on his head and your life in his hands. Is there any way you could say no to this man? And my friends, today I ask you that question. I ask you today if Jesus were standing here today And those wounds were visible to your eyes. And He said, follow me. And He said, come to me. Confess your sins to me and I will give you life. Would you be able to say no? You know, the reality is Jesus is here today. Not in person, but He's here. And the same invitation that He offered 2,000 years ago when He stretched out His arms on the cross and died is the same invitation that He's offering you today. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears My voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me the door in the painting has no knob on the outside jesus does never never forces his way into your life the door is not the door of our room here tonight the door is the door of your heart and jesus says i'm standing there and i'm knocking I venture that you feel it. I venture that you know His call. He says, I'm knocking. If anyone opens the door, I'll come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. When Jesus knocks at your door tonight, tomorrow, the days to come, how will you respond? When He says, your life needs to be surrendered to Me because I want to forgive your sins. I want to give you healing. I want to give you restoration to bring you back into union with your Heavenly Father. How will you respond? Will you open the door and let Jesus come into your life and change you forever? Give you hope and peace And confidence today and a future that holds eternal life. How will you respond when His call comes? When He knocks at your door? When He looks you square in the eye and says, come. The sanctuary service of the Old Testament. The prophecy that we find through the sanctuary was a message pointing us to Jesus. Sometimes we have it in our minds that the Old Testament has nothing to do with the Gospel. My friends, the Old Testament is full of the Gospel. We just have to see it. And the sanctuary prophecy bring us clearly right down through to the time of the New Testament when Jesus Himself, as the Lamb of God, offers you eternal life. He's willing to take your place if you're willing to have Him take it. Would you say no? How could you say no? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, tonight we thank You for the message of love that You have given us so clearly from the pages of the Bible. Father, as we night by night look at this love letter from You, Lord, may we see Jesus in a way that is so clear, so plain. And may we see the love that He has demonstrated for us. Father, we acknowledge that we're sinners. We acknowledge that we have a problem We acknowledge that we can do nothing in and of ourselves to fix the problem. But Father, tonight we're asking that Jesus would take our sins away. We're asking that He would come into our lives and cleanse us and forgive us of our past. We're asking that this Lamb of God would forgive the sins of our lives. Father, take us tonight, keep us, protect us, And Lord, bring us back again tomorrow as we look together at the prophecy's center of attraction. Thank you for your blessing. Guide us now as we part ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, this is Jason Williams. I hope that you have been blessed by listening to this presentation today. The Word of God contains so many wonderful things for us to study and learn, and we have just been able to cover a very small portion of it today. I encourage you to continue studying your Bible. God promises to bless you as you seek to know and to do His will. For further messages from this series or for additional biblical presentations, be sure to check out our website, www.thesureword.org. That's www.thesureword.org May God richly bless you.